0: Uh, This morning is January 30th. It's Sunday morning. We're going to be in John 6, primarily looking at the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water and what we can glean from that ourselves. Uh, Are you all with me on John 6? Yes. Okay. Um, I guess we just start right here. John 6, 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Get this line. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Isn't that interesting? We've been told that in Sunday school that God tests us so that we will see what is in our hearts. And uh, other times it's speculative whether God even tests us. Everything that's bad comes from the devil, everything that's difficult comes from the devil. This is another. School of thought. You'll see multiple times in the word God tests somebody so that he will see what is in their hearts. The reality is Jesus knew how he was going to handle the situation before it happened. And there's a reason for that. Jesus was the word of God. Jesus lived, breathed, ate, said, did the will of God. That was his life. His very life was an expression of the will of God. And Ezekiel 34 describes this setting. Jesus knew when he was coming into this what he was going to do because Ezekiel 34 described it and told him what to do. So that I can tell you a little bit ahead of time, Ezekiel 34 describes a setting where God is very displeased with the shepherds in Israel because they cared more about themselves than they cared about the sheep. They were there to extort the sheep but had no real love for the sheep. So God said, I will remove you from my sheep and I will raise up one shepherd who will feed my sheep. And he'll do it on the mountains of Israel in a very green uh, place where they'll all be able to lie down and hear his teaching. That's basically what Ezekiel 34 says. He says, I'll bring them back from the nations if I have to. And uh, all of these great signs. Now, Jesus is on a mountain in Israel. A great crowd is gathering. He's looking around. There happen to be some springs there that you can go to today. And he has in mind that he's going to feed the people and teach them about him being the shepherd. I mean, that's what he has in mind to do. But he looks to his disciples, those that are supposed to be following him, those that should know him the best, and he asks a question for the purpose of testing them. He says, where shall we buy bread for all these people? Now, John uses this quite a few times. He talks about food and the subject is not at all food. Food's something that people need every day. You have to have it to live it's a focus of our life. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people, I'm one included, wake up thinking about what I might eat for lunch or dinner that day. Okay? That's, so the Word uses very natural things to get you to understand spiritual principles. Jesus could care less about food. He wants to know, Philip, how are you going to react to this problem? Is it going to surprise you? Is it going to catch you off guard? Are you going to panic and think that there is no way that we can handle this problem? How will you react to this problem? Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked. Uh, He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Well, how did Philip do? Philip answered, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, and he presents a solution. The test was for Philip. Jesus asked him this, and what was Philip's response? It's impossible. It can't be done. If we had money, and isn't it amazing how often we think our problems have to do with money? He says, if we only had eight months' wages, we still wouldn't have enough. Basically, Jesus, we don't have enough money to fix this problem. Isn't that pretty much what Philip just said? Jesus is not talking about money, and he's not at all talking about food. He's simply going to teach the disciples that he is the source for every problem that they have. And they don't get it yet. But watch this. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? You know, I always thought before I really got into this passage, oh, look, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he at least is coming and said, look, Lord, here's what we have. We can do something with this. That's not what he's doing. One says... (laughs) Man, if we had eight months' wages, that wouldn't be enough. You'd have to be Bill Gates to feed all of these people. No faith. Not a thought that Jesus could fix this problem. The next one comes to the <laughs> All we got here is these uh, five loaves and two fish. That wouldn't go anywhere with all of these people. They're both presenting skepticism. How often does God put us in a position where we look around and because our arms don't solve the problem, because there's not enough money in our bank account, Because there's not enough natural ability within us. All you hear come out of our mouths. All you see displayed in our lives is skepticism. Oh, no. Well, if I was so-and-so, then I could do this. If I was that person, then maybe. But woe is me. I don't have enough wages. And all I have is this little bit of food. Nothing can be done. What is that reek of? When you talk about faith, another word for faith, I teach this all the time, is trust. What are they really showing that they don't have? They really don't have trust in Jesus to handle every situation. Jesus already had in mind how He was going to fix this problem. Who didn't have it in mind, though? Philip and Andrew, the disciples. Jesus already knew before He asked how He was going to solve this problem. The problem is, it was, so, it was out of the conception. It was not even a possible thought in the disciples' mind that Jesus could fix the problem. You know, when we sang that song in worship, Father of Light's, you never change. You're not like shifting shadows. You never change. You delight in your people. That's that's what we say. But then when we face our problems, we act like God has changed His character suddenly. He is not going to help us. Instead, He's going to repent from who He is and allow us to suffer because He does not delight in us. How often do we as Christians have the attitude that God won't, God can't, or He just doesn't for you? He might do it for Matthew. He might do it for Diana, but He certainly won't do it for Eric. I, I mean, the reality is this is what keeps Christians from succeeding. We do not understand the character of God wanting to bless us. Now, I'm not teaching you about a prosperity gospel. The reality is what is wrong with the prosperity gospel is nobody teaches that you must prove faithful over what you've been given. See, If you want more from God, let's start with what you have been given by God. And so we skip that part. We want a new car and the car that we have, we don't change the oil in, we don't wash inside, it's not clean, and truthfully we're not thankful for it. But we want a new one. We whine and cry about the position in our life, but we do nothing to show good stewardship over the position in our life. These disciples are here And they're here for a teaching session. It's okay. They're students. And so are you. And so am I. We're students. There's great mercy for this. But they're here. They're presented with a problem that Jesus already knows how He's going to fix. He's using their reactions to teach them something. You have no faith. You need to learn to trust Me. Friends, every problem that we face in life has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with our circumstances, period. It has everything to do with learning to trust Him. When we quote a scripture that says, I was young and now I'm old and many things have I seen, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. And then we walk out worried about how we're going to pay our electricity bill. Do we really trust Him? I can say, oh, well, that's easy for Diana. I mean, she was born independently wealthy. (laughs) She rolled in her eyes. I can say that, but the reality is, it does not matter whether you are strong or weak, God will put you in a position to test you. If you're very strong, and I'm thinking of somebody in my life that uh, is strong, has lots of means, okay? Well, God just has extraordinary circumstances to bring that person to a position of need. If you don't have lots of means, it takes less extraordinary circumstances to bring you to a position of great need. But He does it to all. He's the God that takes the, the proud and humbles them and takes the humble and lifts them up. God does this because it teaches us all about Him. He's put you in a position to test you. Now let's see how to react. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. <clears throat> I've been to this place. And this place is a, is a natural amphitheater. It's gorgeous. Uh, beautiful, serene mountainside overlooking a lake to where Jesus could stand in one place and he could speak and it kind of echoes as you speak. And I don't know whether that's why Jesus chose it or whether it's because Ezekiel said on these mountains is where it will happen. But the bottom line is this, is this is where it happened. And what would you do if you had to feed 5,000 people? He said, well, here's a boy with five loaves and two fish. Who else in the crowd has something? Everybody ante up some money. Let's... Let's see what Jim has, what David has, and what Matthew has. We will pull our resources, and then, always looking to our own arms for salvation. Jesus says, first off, while we're teaching this, everybody sit down. I don't need you to do anything. You all just sit down, relax, and listen to me. I'm going to teach you about trusting me. Now, that's part of it. The other part is, God is a God of order. When you read this in all of the accounts, he actually sat them down and ordered them. He put them in groups of 50 and 100 so that there would be orderly distribution. Sometimes in the charismatic world, we, we get so excited about God's miraculous power, we forget about administration. Oh Lord, I know you will provide for my finances, so uh, there's no need for me to live by a budget. No, God is a God of order. <laughs> and one thing that he does is he will teach you an orderly way to do things. First thing he does is he has them sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves and gave thanks and distributed to those that were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. What's interesting about this, does it say that Jesus took the loaves and fish and multiplied them there before the people? doesn't say that at all, does it? Did he pray over them and suddenly there were thousands of fish? No. Instead, he prayed and then they began to distribute and there was enough for everybody that was there. I can't get this right in my mind other than I'm telling you what I don't see is I don't see a banquet table before all these people with five loaves and two fish and he prays and suddenly there's thousands of loaves and fish. That's not how God does things. We are always waiting for God. If God would just give me $5,000, then I will be obedient. We're always waiting to see the enormous provision and then we will do what God tells us to do. And the reality is they started with very, very little and it just never ran out. Do you see the difference between those two attitudes? One says, God, You do all the work and then I will be obedient. And the other says, Lord, I will begin to be obedient and trust that you provide for the work. Now, do you begin to see that? If you don't, we could spend lots of time going all the way back to the Old Testament, taking the widow's oil, taking the king with the arrows, all of the other parables that teach this very principle. But the principle is basically this. You start with what you have, no matter how small it may be, and you trust that God will add to it. That's entirely different than sitting in these chairs, wearing out your knees, praying that God adds you the abundance and then you will be obedient. Are you all following me so far? Okay. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. If there were 5,000 men there and most of them were married, you know, now, now we have come close to doubling that number if there were any kids with them then of course we've gone higher than that haven't we so when we say feeding the 5,000 it really could be as much as 10 huh? I have a feeling it was probably about 12 but that's just me Jesus then took the loaves gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted Jesus took the loaves and did what? There is profound power in learning to give thanks in the position that you are in today, no matter how small, no matter how meager it looks. See, the heart of the gospel is, Lord, I may not have very much here, but I'm trusting that if I give you what I have, it will never not be enough. That's what grace is. Grace is saying, Lord, I can't, but with you, I can. Whatever I am short, I'm trusting You will add to me. Whatever strength I don't have, I'm leaning on You to give me, but I will use what I have. If this, if this setting had been in today's church, they would have had a committee meeting, determined that they did not collectively have the resources to do this, and pray, Lord, when You provide what I need, then I will be obedient. And that's the attitude of most Christian households. It really is. The Lord's ignoring us. He does not see our problems. He does not care about us. He will not help. And when we see His help, then we will begin to act like Christians. You know, This happens in husband and wife relationships all the time. When he acts more like Jesus, I'll act more like the church. Mm, that's, it doesn't work. The husband. Well, when she starts acting like the bride of Christ, when she learns to submit, then I'll be more like Jesus. But until then, I have to be an ogre it doesn't work it works only one way we'll get off the household subject in a minute it works when the husband stands up and leads as a husband and the wife joins him in that joint venture that's the only way that that works the bible even describes anything short of that is totally cutting off your prayer from heaven isn't that remarkable it really is So Jesus gave thanks over what he had, though it was not anywhere near enough to meet the needs of the people. Five loaves, two fishes. And he was thankful for the five loaves and two fishes. You know, you hear this all the time. Anybody that travels outside of this country, anybody, says, wow, I never realized how much Americans have. There's really no such thing as poor people here. I mean, you hear that from anybody that travels, especially the third world. That's the resounding testimony when they came back. Here, even the poor have more than the middle class in most places. Nobody in here qualifies for poor, but are we thankful for the five loaves and two fishes that we're starting with? Are we truly thankful for what we have? Or are we resentful that we don't have more? Are we resentful that we don't seem to have enough? Jesus was thankful for what He had. And so what did God do with it? He did the same with the fish. When they, had all, when they had all had enough to eat, He said to His disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. What time did I start in here? Do you all know? About five after. Okay. They start with very little. He's thankful, so God multiplies it. What do we do when we do experience times of abundance? Let's just say God does a miracle, right? This year, you struck oil on a house that you sold, and you got an extra 10,000 dollars, or 15 or 20. That should fix all your problems, right? I mean, who here doesn't think that their financial problems would be solved if you had 100 grand? Think back about the times God has multiplied money for you. Did it ever fix your problem? Never. Never. I mean, it fixed an immediate problem, but that was it. In fact, when God multiplies what we have, are you careful to pick up all the little pieces that are left over? Or is it easy come, easy go? You know, The reality is we're often not very good stewards over what we're given. Now, I'm not talking about the guy that gives away every dime trying to meet the needs of others. And if any of you in here qualify for that, then praise God for you. That is a real blessing. I'm talking about God has multiplied for you, and so this becomes an opportunity for you to not live as a good steward because you don't have to. He, he multiplied it for you. Look what Jesus did. And I'll get off this natural subject in a minute and tell you what this parable really means, but I thought this would be a good example. When they, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. There's something to be said for two two attitudes that we see here. One is he was thankful for what he had in the very beginning. That allowed God to multiply it. The second attitude that is something to be said for is let nothing be wasted. What God has given me, I will let none of it be wasted. If he has given me knowledge to teach, then I will not let one of it be wasted. If he has given me resources financially, I will let none of it be wasted. Be wasted. If He he has given me hospitality, I will waste none of it. I will put it all to use in His kingdom. The third principle here is because He was thankful, God didn't just multiply. He had enough that was left over. Isn't it amazing that we can start in a situation, have not enough to meet even the needs of the disciples, much less the ten or 12,000 people that are there, but with the right heart, the right attitude, God can multiply that to not only meet all of their needs, but have some left over. Isn't that amazing? Now you could take this scripture and you could twist this. You could get me on TV and I tell you you send me a hundred, and God will send you back twelve hundred. And I could use that as a fisher for funds and try just to extort people for money. That's not at all this is not about money, and this is not about fish. Not at all. It's about trusting God as your source of provision. You know, I teach this a lot. God sent Elijah to a specific place and said, there I will feed you. No sooner did he get there and God feed him, he dried it up and said, go somewhere else. So why would God do that? He was obedient the first time. He was teaching him to trust no matter where. See, if God says, I want you to go to Eric's house. It's going to be a source of provision. And you go here and you eat three times a day for five days. It's not all that long and you forget that it was God who told you to go there and you start to think it's Eric's house that is the source of provision. But if he moves that house around and it's in a different place every week, there's no chance for you to get confused and think the house is the source of provision. You are confident that God is the source of provision. Think about that with your jobs for a moment. You know, how many times has God tried to move you and you thought, oh, no, I can't. How will I make a living? Your job's never been the source of provision in your life. Even when we were in an agricultural society, crops, people that were worshipping false gods, Paul tells them, God's not left himself without witness among you. This is in Acts 17. He said, he's given you your crops in season and out. Even for the unrighteous, God is the source of provision. We need to get that in our hearts because once you do, then when Jesus puts you in a position where he wants to test you, when you have in your heart, God is my source, when that is rooted down deep to where it's a part of you, not something you just learned in church, but something that is a part of you where you trust him for provision, then when he says, hey, look at all these people, where are we going to get food for them? You'd look right back and say, I don't know, where are we going to get food for these people? You're the source, man. Wouldn't that have delighted Him? I bet Jesus would have jumped up and down because He saw faith in them. It's amazing how Christians are though. You know, we say that's true. We'll sing about it being true. And then when it gets time to live it in our life, we whine, kick the ground, and act like God has let us down because we're being tested. And then we're resentful of everybody around us that just doesn't understand how bad our situation is as if not every human being goes through this. Now, what it takes to test Mandy may be different than Jennifer. What it takes to test Jennifer might be different than Matthew, but it makes no difference. God will put every human being in this position because it's how you learn to trust Him. Now, you could be a swimming instructor. Instructor, Throw a child in the water and see if he swims. That'd be one method to teach. You could be a swimming instructor that gets in the water with the child and holds their hand and leads them around the pool while they kick. You could be a swimming instructor that gets in the water but allows separation between you and the child to see if they kick. But no matter at what level you do that, there has to be some trust between the child and the instructor that he won't let me sink. And it's necessary to learn to swim. It's necess- At some point, friends, you've got to take off the floaties. Now, we talk about faith. If you don't have faith that He's the source for your things in the natural, what makes you think He'll save you? If you really understand that we are under the power of death, we are literally sentenced to death, but He is our source of salvation and we have no faith that He's the source for anything else, on what are you basing your hope that He saved you? I will be very honest When the mark of a Christian's life or somebody that's supposed to be a Christian is worry and doubt, always you begin to wonder have they met this source of salvation or have they simply heard about it? See, we can argue all day long about what an apple tastes like that's sitting right here. But if I've tasted it, it's not an argument to me anymore. You can debate about it all day long whether it's sweet or it's sour and if you haven't tasted it and I have, I will know by your description. You need to examine yourselves in these situation and see whether you pass the test. So he says, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they get this. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Let's there for a minute. We start with five. What is five the number of in the Bible? Grace. Grace. Five is always associated with an act of grace through the Levitical law, through all of the Old Testament. Now, if you don't know this already, that's okay. We will teach on all of the numbers eventually, but I don't have time to do it today. We won't get to the heart of the message which still lies ahead. Five is a number of grace. What is two the number of? Because there were two fish. Covenant. It takes two to be in covenant. Two always has to do with covenant. So we have five barley loaves, two fish. We have a grace covenant. When the grace covenant was instituted here, when it was displayed before the people, what did it produce? Twelve basketfuls left over. Twelve always has to do with God's government on earth. has to do with Israel. There are twelve tribes. Uh, Everything in Israel was a multiple of twelve. Now, I don't want to get too far off into Geomatra and what all that means other than to say, even while Jesus is teaching about trusting Him as the source, even while He is there testing His disciples and providing simply for the people in the natural, He is also teaching about His overall plan at the same time. A grace covenant that would produce God's government on earth. Y'all sang the song Ancient of Days today. All of us sang it. How many people have read Daniel 7 in the last month? Daniel 7 teaches us that God's grace covenant will produce on the earth the government of God. We sing the right songs. We just don't live the right attitude sometimes. God sees the end from the beginning. He has told us now we have to trust and the way that you know whether you trust Him is will you walk it out.
1: You know, there have been a
0: million examples through the years. I mean, you've heard them all about, you know... Some say it's faith to know that that chair will support me. But until I go and actually sit in it, that's not real faith. Y'all have heard all of those things. The high wire example and who out here will go across this high wire with me and nobody will do it and a little kid says, I will. And he gets out there with him on the high wire and the kids do it and they say, wow, why would that kid do that? Well, he's my son. You know, of course he trusts that I can do this. You know, y'all have seen all of those examples. The problem is not that we don't know them time to live them. It's time to grow up in our faith, to mature. And if you're already doing them, then the attitude of the Scripture is you do these in increasing measure. God will provide for you obstacles and you'll look at each new bigger obstacle and go, wow, one more to conquer for Jesus. Christians are not measured by how blessed they are. They are measured by what they endure. And see, here we are. we got all 12 disciples. They have just seen miracles. They have just seen Jesus do extraordinary things. Now here's the next obstacle and he asked them a question to test them. He already knew he was going to fix the problem but he wanted to know where are your thoughts guys and their thoughts were totally on the natural same place ours tend to be. Your car breaks tomorrow. First of all is do I have enough space on my MasterCard? Oh no, yours is not. Yours is do I have enough in my checking account? Maybe some of you are very good stewards. Do I have enough in my savings account? Then if there's not enough in the checking and the savings is there enough space on MasterCard or Visa card? Or who can I borrow the money from? How long does it take us before we begin to say, Lord, I have a problem and you are my source of provision. I need your help. How long? Do you have to exhaust every resource? Do you have to take an inventory or a census of your entire army before you decide to ask God to help you in the battle? I often do. It's got me in more trouble. He's allowed me to get to the place where there was no army around me. There was nothing left to lean on but Him. And He did it for my benefit. Strong or weak, he'll let you get to that point because it's how you learn to trust him. Y'all are all at varying places in that trusting cycle, and I know that. But all of us go through it. Okay, so after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Those of you that have been here on Wednesday nights, who was the prophet? This is Deuteronomy 18.15. This is uh, one of the great messianic hopes of Israel that the prophet, not a prophet, not just any, but the special prophet who was to come, who we'd have to listen to every word of his or we would be cut off. He would be the guy like Moses. Now, what did Moses do? He led the people out of their bondage with great signs, wonders, and judgment on the people that he led them out of and into a promised land. So what would they want Jesus to do? to come be this awesome prophet who judged the Romans, brought down plagues on the Romans, and led Israel out to occupy their own land. Okay? That's what they would want. So what do they want to do? Verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make Him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by Himself. Y'all turn with me to Mark. No, I'm sorry. Turn with me to Matthew. Matthew 14. Jesus... Knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew. I want you to get this principle. One of the principles that we studied earlier is that when you're thankful over the very little that you have, God will stretch it to be enough. One of the other principles was when you let no pieces be wasted, when you are faithful over what He gives you, you always have some left over. You got those? Here's another principle worth learning if you want to live if you want to make it in this gospel. When you intend to force God's hand, He withdraws from you. When you intend to impose your will on God, He has to withdraw from you because it's an imbalance in your relationship. God is not the cosmic genie that is there to solve your every problem. He is not Santa Claus there waiting for your Christmas list to give you whatever it is that you've asked for. He is God. You are the man. It's your job to tune your ear to His will, not His job to tune His ears to your will. They saw some things happen. There was faith there. They trusted that He was somebody who was awesome. But the conclusion that they drew from it is, now we want Him to do what we want Him to do. And so He withdrew. Now we're going to find out He withdrew from the crowd. The crowd's not yet born again, if you will. But the disciples are a special teaching group. You're not like the crowd. You're like the special teaching group. When mankind tries to make God do something, he withdraws. When a disciple tries to make God do something, something else happens. It's altogether lovely. Watch this. In verse 22, this is right after Jesus has withdrawn from the crowd because they tried to force him to be king. Immediately... Jesus made, forced, made. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of Him to the other side while He dismissed the crowd. He dismissed the crowd. He withdrew from them. But the response to the disciples in the crowd trying to make Jesus do something was He made them do something. He said, I I can see that this is kind of skimming over. Let me bring it home. God, if I'm going to do this that you told me to do, then what I need from you is you need to... Whatever. If you really want me to love this woman, then you have to... If you really want me to take care of these kids that you've given me, then you need to... When you do that, you are inviting something. And let's find out what we're inviting. Turn with me to Mark. All of these are the same scriptures, by the way. Turn to uh, Mark 6, page eleven seventeen. You can go back and read each of these accounts if you like. I'll tell you what's different in each of them as we go. When mankind tries to force God to do something, he withdraws. He, he will not at all be in a position where man is trying to leverage God. You need to be very careful about it. your word says so you must. That's not the right attitude. The right attitude is... Your word says, so I can be confident you will. I know you will because I know who you are. You're an awesome God. Not, you have to because you said so. That's, that formulistic approach to God never gets anywhere. I don't care what they say on TV. You know it, it does not work anything except building a facade. When disciples, though, try to force God, people that are under God's instruction, listen to how he handles this immediately Jesus made His disciples, this is verse 45, get into the boat and go on ahead of Him to Bethsaida. While He dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, He went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and He was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, He went out to them Now, get this for me. Jesus asks a question to test them. What was the question about? Loaves and fishes, right? Do you think they understood yet? Evidently not, because Jesus is having to force them to get into a boat and dismiss a crowd. Jesus goes up on a mountainside to pray. Incidentally, this mountainside, it overlooks their situation where he just made them get into a boat. Did they decide to go get in this boat? No, he hemmed them in. He forced them to. The implication in the original language is actually threw them into the boat. It, it, it implies some resistance and some force, and it's up to the interpreter to, decr- to decide how much. Okay? <clears throat> Lord, if you don't do this, then I won't. Lord, you have to do this because he forced them into a boat and then sat at a distance and watched them strain and make it. No progress. Why would he do that? Is he just being cruel to him? Why would he do that? Why would God allow you to struggle and strain at the oars? Now, do you think it was dark when he threw him in the boat? Was he standing out on a, on a mountainside teaching some ten thousand people in the pitch black? Probably not. But now we're in the fourth watch of the night. If a watch is about three hours and it gets dark at six, go twelve hours from six. We're in the early, early a.m., right before daylight. What does that mean? He watched them struggle all night. Friends, I've been to this lake. This is That's not a picture of it. That's a picture of it. You know, in its widest part, it's only 18 miles wide. They were in a boat and did not, if they were in the widest parts, did not travel 18 miles in 12 hours. You can walk 18 miles in 12 hours. They were straining at it, and he watched one of the greatest teaching tools that he has is to present you a situation, see how you react, and when your reaction is not favorable, he will allow you to struggle with it so that it is absolutely clear when he brings deliverance that it's him that is the source. He allows the struggle because it teaches us. Would any of you have learned to swim if you were set in the pool and every time you started to paddle and the buoyancy dropped so that you started going, to your, you, you were picked up out of the water? It's that very struggle that teaches you how to swim. Jesus is teaching them how to swim in the waters of faith. Immediately, Jesus made them get into the boat. And verse 47, When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Now get that. They're stuck right smack dab in the middle of the trial that Jesus plunged them into. And He was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit is usually spoken of as the wind. Now in this case, Jesus speaks and calms the wind, so that's all debatable and I'm not, I'm not telling you the wind is the Holy Spirit here. I'm just telling you the picture here is they're straining against God's will. They have tried to dictate to God what they want God to do, so God's put them in a situation where they are straining against His will and making no progress. Why? Because He loves them. He's trying to teach them. When they tried to force God, He forced them. About the fourth watch of the night, He went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. When they saw Him walking on the lake, they thought He was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw Him and were terrified. Get this. You see somebody you love. You've made them get into a boat. They're out there straining in the middle of the lake. Now you're doing a miracle. But you're just going to walk on by. Have you never felt like you were straining at the oars and Jesus was passing you by? You know, everybody seemed blessed but you. Everybody seemed to be delivered but you. You think, oh God, woe is me. What is the first thing Jesus says to them? Immediately he spoke to them and says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Most of human behavior would be solved if we listened to this one scripture. Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Brad, take courage in the Word of God. He's God. Don't be afraid. Diana, do not be afraid. Live full of courage. If you took that one sentence and go back to the test with Philip. Philip, what are we going to do? Oh, Lord, I have an optimistic outlook. I know who you are. I'm not going to be afraid of not being able to meet this demand. When the people want to rise up and make Jesus king, oh, no, 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 no. We don't have to force this in our own timing. We're going to take courage in God's plan because we know who Jesus is and I won't be afraid of the oppressor, the Roman. You get out here straining at the oars. The waves are coming over the ship. I don't have to be worried about the ship sinking. I don't have to be worried about not reaching my goal. Jesus put me in the boat I'm doing what he said to do. I'm going to take courage, know who he is and not be afraid. That is a magic solution to every problem. But most of human behavior is, revolves around two attitudes. Fear of loss and greed for more. I'm scared I'm going to lose what I have and I want more than I have. They even teach you in sales schools to play on those human emotions. Well, Brad, if you're not the kind of man that wants to drive a Honda Accord, Maybe you should go down to the Yugo lot. You know that, that kind of sale is a takeaway, trying to take away from him the ability to achieve something, and it works, or they wouldn't teach it. You know? The greed for more or the fear of loss dominates behavior most of the time. I'm scared. Now we don't always admit it. We mask it in all kinds of things, but that is where most of it is, we just don't trust God, so we are scared of the situation. Watch what he does. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. You know, I read this for years and thought, (coughs) what on earth is he talking about? They're on a boat. In fact, this is where Peter has gotten out of the boat. You can read this in Matthew. Walked on the water, almost sank. And now He's talking about the loaves. How do we go from the wind and the boat and the straining of the oars back to the loaves? The message was the same. Jesus was trying to teach them, I am the source for everything. Trust Me. And when they didn't get the message with the loaves, He plunged them into a trial that was more graphic for them immediately and then watched to see how they would do. And they were straining and couldn't make progress. But when they saw Jesus coming, at first they were unwilling to take him into the boat, Matthew said. Isn't that interesting? He's a ghost. We don't want him. Funny thing happens to people that say they love the Lord. People. When I say people, I mean you and I mean me. Oh, I love him. Praise God. He's Jehovah Jireh. And then we're in a trial. And we act like God is against us. We are scared to get up close to him. We don't... Our intimacy right away starts to be affected with God when you're in a trial. How do you know that? What is the number one sign that your intimacy with God is starting to be affected? You run away from fellowship (laughs) where you typically are intimate with God. Say, Oh, well, that's just fellowship and I'm just doing this so that I can get more intimate with God. It's usually not the case. Could be. Could be. Maybe you are so burdened down with ministry Maybe you're so tired of feeding all of the people that you need to go get on a mountainside alone to pray. But most of the time when people run from intimacy in the fellowship, they're running from intimacy with God. Or I love you, God, I just don't like your people. Doesn't work. God is in his people. (laughs) I I tried that. I did that in Lafayette for a few years. (laughs) You know. Lord, I love you, fine. It's your church that I think sucks. You know? I mean I did that. Does not work. But watch this. While they're straining, feeling like they're overcome, Jesus comes walking on the water and they're scared to let Him into their situation. Why? Why would you be scared to let Jesus into your trial? Mandy is uh, trying to buy a house. The house deal is not going well. She felt like God told her to buy the house and now it just seems to be crashing in on her head. Why would she be scared to hear from God now? Well, I'm not sure I heard from Him the first time. It's not all going well. And what if He says to me, what, in, in other words, what if I don't like what's happening? They don't want Jesus in the boat with them because they haven't liked what Jesus has done for them thus far. You know, we tried you, Jesus. This not working very well. Kind of sucks here. You know, we feel like we're going to die. So I'm not real sure I want you in the boat. And there was a process. What you don't get here that you get in Matthew that I don't have time to read is one of the disciples said, Man, Don't get to the boat. Lord, if this is really you, I'll get out of the boat and I'll come check you out, okay? In other words, all the apostles are in the boat. They're going, I don't know about letting this guy back in the boat. You know, this walk is not going so good for us so far. Looks like a ghost. We're kind of scared of him, you know? So one of them says, well, hold on. I'll go to him. If it's really you, Jesus, if it's really you, Jesus, then call to me and I'll come walk to you. He gets out of the boat. He's walking to him until what happens? What happened to Peter that caused Peter to sink? What happened to the natural? What did Peter see? He started to see the waves around him. And although he had been walking on the water, he started to sink. Save me, Lord. I perish, is what Peter said. That's where a lot of Christians are. Jesus has put you in a struggle to teach you. He's put you in the struggle to show you not to force your will on Him, but to display His will in your life. And you're struggling and you don't feel like you're making any progress and saying, Lord, I perish. And yet you're still kind of scared to reach out and embrace Him because what if He requires even more of you? It's kind of like when somebody has pain and the physical therapist saying, here, how's this feel? Oh, that hurts. How's this feel? That hurts. Oh, well, that's about good there. No further, okay? You know, David's ready to get up and get out of physical therapy because I'm hurting him. doesn't know that ultimately it makes him better. We get to a place in our walk where we say, Hey, look, I stepped out. I, I thought I heard from you. Now I'm not so sure. This is not going so well. We're good here, okay? <laughs> you know, no more direction? Uh, no, this is pretty well tearing my life apart. We just You and I, we're all right, okay? You know, I'll just hang out here for a while. Come on. I, I mean, y'all don't know what I'm talking about? Is this just too abstract for you? No. Yeah. I know. I, I've experienced it. I know. But the most amazing thing happens. When he climbed in the boat, the wind died down. What this doesn't say that Matthew says, turn back to Matthew, Matthew 14. No, sorry, John. (laughs) We'll play scripture roulette here today. It's a problem with three accounts of the same thing. (laughs) I can't remember how it says it where. John 6. Okay. Um, Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately, the boats reached the shore where they were heading. What they had not been able to accomplish in 12 hours by themselves, what had been deliberately frustrated for their benefit, at the moment they became willing to take Jesus into that situation, Lord, this has not gone so well. I don't understand it. I'm frustrated and frankly, I'm hurt. But I'm willing to accept your direction in this situation and do whatever it says, even if it means I perish. Then what happens? the boat reached the shore where they were headed. See, it is a process to teach. It's not to punish. It's to teach. They didn't understand the message of the fishes and the loaves. So because they were His disciples, He provided another lesson for them. And they got out there and it was hard and they weren't sure they wanted Him into the boat. It says when they became willing to let Him in the boat, then immediately the boat reached the other side. So what do we learn from that? What you learn from that is, number one, above all, God is the source. Number two with this, no matter what you have, how little, we're going to be very thankful for what we have because it will be enough. God will give me whatever I need and it will be enough. Next, once He's given you something, anything, and you're being faithful with it, let none of it be wasted. Don't, don't treat what God has given you as if it's not important. You know, if you go work for somebody and they entrust you with a budget, the first thing everybody wants to do is come in under budget. Show them what a good job you did with what you were given. You know, and we need to have some of the same attitude about stewardship because when that is your attitude, he will make sure there's so much left over that it meets everybody's needs. Number one, you'll be thankful for what you have. Number two, you waste none of it knowing that his provision will meet everybody's needs. Then, Aside from Him being the source, aside from Him being thankful for what you have, aside from wasting none of it, you embrace every trial as an opportunity to learn and grow, realizing that Jesus is testing you, He's encouraging you, He's teaching you. And no matter how dark the days get, you remember the song that we sang this morning, Father of lights, you never change, you're not like the shifting shadows, you delight in your children. The wind's beating down on me. I'm straining at the oars, but I know that God delights in me. Is there nobody in here that has never thought God delighted in you? Yeah? Is there anybody in here that thinks from time to time, oh, God would never bless me in that way? I don't think I could ever. Of course you do. You're human beings. We all think that. But He delights in you. If you're struggling, you're struggling for the purpose of Him teaching you into a blessing. Because what happened when they were taking him into the boat was immediately they were on the other side. Was God not able to get him on the other side quicker without getting in the boat? Of course he was. But they wouldn't have learned the lesson. The lesson is always, no matter what your circumstances are, come and help me, Jesus. I'm not demanding of you what you have to do. I'm asking for your help. I think it's funny our fleeces. Any Anybody in here ever thrown out a fleece? I did before I got married. I did in lots and lots of situations. And I've always thought of a fleece as a good thing, you know? I gave God a chance to speak, right? You all know what I'm talking about, fleece, Gideon and his fleece? We get fleece from Gideon, right? God told Gideon to do something. Gideon didn't believe God. So Gideon throws out a fleece and God proves it. And Gideon still doesn't believe it. So he throws out another fleece and Gideon still doesn't believe it. So he throws out a fleece a third time and finally Gideon believes it. Is that really the pattern that we want to emulate? You know, I always thought of a fleece as a good thing. No, the model in Scripture is, Lord, you said it, so I'm going to do it. Not, Lord, you have to prove to me. Sometimes in Christ we have our will for the way that our lives should go and we try to force that on God. He plunges us into circumstances to teach us He's the source to teach us to take him into the boat, and most of all, to teach us to prove faithful in the situation that we're in. And immediately when you get obedient to that, he encourages you. Was the other side of the lake the end of their race? No, it's the beginning of the next trial. Do you know what happens? They meet a Gadarean demoniac. Oh, joy! A guy who breaks chains, hangs out with dead bodies, and is terrorizing everybody in town. And And he's naked. How about that? I mean, with this, you know, did they go from... A struggle right into paradise? No, and neither do you. You go from one struggle right into the next and your life is about showing the glory of God through difficult circumstances. Now, if you don't like that, if that doesn't make you happy, you need to examine whether or not you want to be a Christian because that is what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is about finding joy, displaying joy in difficult circumstances so that the world will go... My goodness, it's awful dark out here, and yet that one shines like the light. Turn with me to Psalm 112, and we're going to quit. I was writing some letters to people, uh, and I don't do that. If you ever get a handwritten note for me, I don't want to pat myself on the back here, but that's like a major undertaking for me. I would rather build you a deck at your house than to have to write you a letter by hand, okay? Uh, and I wrote handwritten letters to a lot of people this this week and Psalm 112 was on my mind for a lot of it. Um, I have to get to Psalm 112. Sorry, not uh, not forgetting that our message today was John 6, <laughs> because I'm going to throw that in the John 6 series. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. Boy, doesn't that sound like just churchy language? Oh, I find great delight in the Lord's commands. Unless He wants me to strain at the oars for four hours or to feed 10,000 people in an impossible situation. Then I'm not going to delight in His commands. I'm going to whine and moan and uh, be very upset with God and feel like He's failing me. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who finds great delight in His commands. His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Number one reward, your children will be mighty. Number two reward, wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Your kids will do well and you will have the wealth that you need and the righteousness that you need. Even in dark darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Even in darkness, the righteous find light. God, what an awesome thing. Do you know that when God brought the plagues upon Egypt, it was dark everywhere in Egypt except one place Goshen. Goshen happened to be where the Hebrews were, and so there was light there. Do you know why Exodus says that it was light in Goshen and dark in Egypt? So that everybody would understand that God makes a distinction between his people and the world. The way that the world is supposed to see the distinction is that while you're surrounded by darkness, you're in light. And you can let these words just kind of bounce off and not hit you, but I promise you, in your daily life, you find a lot of times where you just agree with the darkness. You decide to be gloom. You decide to be down. You decide to be just like your surroundings. But where the world begins to see Jesus is when there's a distinction between us and our surroundings. Now, what does that mean for the Christian? That means for the Christian that you are going to have to be surrounded by something dark, so that your lightness shows a distinction. That's your calling. You think it's just poetic language when he says you'll shine like the brightness of the heavens in a dark world and a crooked and perverse generation? When he calls you cleansed and says you're surrounded by the corruption and pollution of the world, the guys who wrote this book, think about it. Where were they? Where was Paul shining? He was in prison. Oh, well, that was Paul. How about Peter? Oh, prison and killed. How about John? He lived, uh, to be old, in jail. Yeah, on Patmos. You know, Christians have always been put in horrible, horrendous situations so that their trust in Jesus that compels them forward will be evident to everybody and they'll learn from it and see, wow, if he can be in the arena eaten by a lion and is happy and is joyful and is certain, then certainly I can trust Jesus in my meager circumstances, it's something to aspire to. The greater the tribulation, the greater the call. And yet we feel punished and beat down, and God doesn't come through for me. With that attitude, He can't. He's going to force you out into the middle of the lake and watch you strain until you're willing to take him into your boat. Even in the darkest light, dawn, even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely. Well, isn't that interesting? Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely. Now, this is really not speaking about money, but since lends is usually what we think of as money, who's more generous? The widow with her might, or the guy with a billion dollars that gives a hundred thousand? You know, what is more generous? See, we always are... This is back to those fishes and loaves. We're waiting for God to give us the abundance so we can share out of our abundance a little bit. God is waiting for you to take the little bit that you have and share it so that He can give you an abundance. Look up the word entrusted in the Bible. Take your concordance. And when I say these things, I want you to know it really does impact me that I know most of the time it doesn't occur. If you really want to learn... Do what I'm saying. Take a concordance. Take your Bible. Look online at a concordance and look up the word entrusted. You have been entrusted with the secret things of God. And when you're entrusted with the secret things of God, Paul said, you must prove yourself faithful. Then look at your circumstances and say, I may not be where I need to be, but am I proving myself faithful in my circumstances? And if you're not, it's a sobriety check. You know? Kind of like giving yourself the breathalyzer before you get out on the highway. You know? Quit asking God for more until you have shown some faithfulness over what you have. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Why would God talk about generous and lending freely? Because most of human behavior is motivated around the fear of loss and the greed for more. So when somebody is generous and lends freely, and guys, I don't want your money, that's not what I'm talking about. It shows a trust in the source I don't have to worry about hoarding what I have God will give me more it shows a real trust in that relationship it's why it honors God so much when somebody leaves a position of security and goes to a position of insecurity because they trust him that's why that honors God it's why you feel such a surge of faith of course then you strain at the oars and doubt whether or not he sent you out in the lake I mean that's normal but you'd be willing to accept his will into your boat and you'll make the other side Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. You want to be remembered? You want to go down in the Hebrews Hall of Fame? You have to do something with your faith. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast trusting the Lord. How much time have we spent fearful of bad news? I hear the layoff is coming. Oh, my blood pressure is kind of high. Uh, What if... During uh, oh Here's one for all the pregnant ladies. My baby's going to be born deformed. I mean, is there not a pregnant woman in the world that hadn't thought that? But the righteous have no fear of a bad report. Why? Because no matter how hard the trial is, we know Jesus sees us through to the other side. That is our testimony. His heart is always steadfast. When you're fearful of bad news, if when you're not fearful of bad news, it's a sign that your heart is steadfast, what is it a sign of when you're fearful of every bad report? Your heart is what? Not steadfast. You know what James says about somebody who wavers in their heart back and forth? They cannot be blessed. James said it. I didn't say it. He says, No man, no double-minded man should ever think that he will be blessed. Can't receive anything from God. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph upon his foes. You want to find the heart of God? The heart of God is looking at your enemy and laughing because you know in the end you'll triumph. You may lose a few battles along the way. It may get rough. You may feel like you are going to die. Knowing the God we serve, you might even die and be raised back to life to triumph over your foes. That is faith. does not matter when my wife's body can be as good as dead and I can be a hundred years old, but God is able to perform what He's promised. That's the faith of Abraham. That, that's the faith that we were saved into. It's not ignoring your circumstances. It's not saying there are no waves about to come over the boat. It's not saying I'm not tired, strain at the oars. It says all of that's true and God will see me through. That is what causes us to shine. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, He will look in triumph on His foes. He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn or authority will be lifted high in honor. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. I say everything that I taught in John 6 today because I want you to know that whatever God has given you, when you prove faithful over it, He will add more and it will be enough to meet the need. And that every time you're in a situation where it looks like you're outnumbered and you can't win... Is a chance for you to see whether or not you trust the source and to prove to the wicked around you who God is. And you know what? Psalm 112 says they'll look and they'll be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and know that they're going to be triumphed over. Now, I'm not talking about people, I'm talking about the principalities. There was a rebellion in the heavenly realms. Have you ever thought about what the angels must think? Wow, these guys are called by Christ's name. Look at them. They're the little heirs of salvation. What's he doing? Why does he talk to his wife like that? He's called Christ, but he's not acting like Christ. He's called Christ, and yet he doesn't have the faith of Christ. How confusing that must be. It goes so far as the Bible tells you, it hinders your prayer. They don't do what you tell them to do when you don't act like Jesus. You know, and apparently it's it's necessary that they move when you pray. You know, they are the foot soldiers in the kingdom. You know, Um I say everything I say today because I want you to prove faithful over what you have. I want you to look at the little bit that God's given you and know it will be enough. He will multiply it if he has to. You got crackers in your cupboard? He'll make the crackers last as long as they need to. The beautiful thing about the kingdom is you're never really in this alone. You know, people in the kingdom help each other when they see that your life is about the kingdom. Funny thing is, though, the church always 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 helps people when they're certain that they're in the church when their lives are in one accord when you start to scratch your head and wonder if you should is when you do not see a life progressing towards the kingdom when you're not sure that locking arms with somebody in battle that you're united in the same path that's when you kind of scratch your head and you go do i need to do this or not Is god Put them straining at the oars to teach them or do they need help getting to the others? What do you do? See, I don't think there's anything Matthew wouldn't do for me if he was certain the will of God was number one in my life. But if Matthew's concerned that I'm really debating adultery and I'm really debating uh, you know, some horrible thing, he might not, might not want to just pitch in and help. He might want to stand back and pray. Uh, I'm realizing that y'all may not get where I'm going with that. But what I'm trying to say is you find help from the body of Christ when you know that you're in the body of Christ, when you act like you're in the body of Christ. When when David said he had never seen the righteous forsaken and their children begging for bread, it's because the righteous are supposed to stand out. All the righteous will help each other. But when you're not sure what team somebody plays for, it's really, really hard to know what to do. We have an obligation to the body of Christ first and then the world. The scripture teaches that over and over and over. Make your calling, your election sure through your actions. Follow me? God will multiply whatever you have and you'll have more left over than when you started if you just do it in faith. If you don't believe that's true, all you've got to do is look at the lives of the people around you. God has taken men without the right educations, put them in jobs that have prospered them. You know, I was told early on in my walk I should go buy a lawnmower and cut grass and clean houses in the Country Club of Louisiana because it was the best I would ever do you know the pastor who had uh, taught me was told he needed to get a single wide trailer put his four kids in public school because he had pretty well maxed out his potential go back to welding that's what he was told to do now he's got a nice home all of his kids are doing well they're all married and they're having grandkids here I am 12 years later and God has prospered me you know I'm not too proud to cut grass in the Country Club of Louisiana or clean houses, but God has shown that He's able to do more for me than that. That's the case of most people around us when we look. So, why would we think God won't do it for us? He will. His word says it. You believe it. Here, here's the phrase take away from this. I'm stammering, stuttering on myself. Here's the phrase Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. If you take that phrase into your heart, take courage. It is Jesus, do not be afraid. What can you not do? I'll stand up. Let's pray.